Our reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter 13, which is page 316 in the Church Bibles. That's page 316. And we're reading from verses 1 to 39. In the course of time, Ammon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Ammon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Ammon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shamir, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Ammon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Ammon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Ammon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Ammon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make me some special bread in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Ammon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Ammon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Ammon said. So everyone left him. Then Ammon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And and Tamar took the bread and prepared it. She had prepared and brought it to her brother Ammon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Ammon hated her with such intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Ammon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, "'Has that Ammon, your brother, been with you? "'Be quiet for now, my sister.' He is your brother. 
don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Ammon, either good or bad. He hated Ammon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's son to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Ammon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent with him Ammon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, Listen, when Ammon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, Strike Ammon down and then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So when Absalom's men did to Ammon what Absalom had ordered, then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules and fled. While they were on their way, the report came back to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his robes and lay down on the ground and all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shamir, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Ammon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intent ever since the day that Absalom raped his sister Tamar. My lord the king should know, should not be concerned about the reports that all the king's sons are dead. Only Ammon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the men standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Honoram on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, See, the king's sons have come. It has happened just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in, wailing loudly. The king too and all his attendants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there for three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Ammon's death. This is God's word. Evening, everyone. Lydia, thanks for reading. My name's Jay Lucas. I'm one of the ministry interns here at CCM, and it's my privilege to come and uh, preach this tough passage this evening. Um, if it's your first time at CCM, welcome. It's great that you're here. Uh, I'd love to meet you after the service and get to know you a bit. We've been working our way through to Samuel over the past few weeks, and the last couple of chapters in particular have been a real challenge, and this chapter is no different. Uh, These are hard things. We need the Lord's help. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that in it you give us all that we need. We may not enjoy a chapter like 2 Samuel 13, but uh, here we have a chapter that we really need. So please soften our hearts by our spirit 
Help us to heed your warnings, to see our sin for what it is, and help us do to the light in what we see of King Jesus here in this chapter. Give me sensitivity as I speak, and give all of us ears to hear as you speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So over the past few weeks, we've been looking at this story of King David. And uh, 2 Samuel, it, it doesn't shy away from showing us the full scale of sin. And as we come to this passage, the question it asks is, if my sin is forgiven, well then, does it, does it really matter? If my, if my sin is forgiven, does it really matter? So if Jesus has paid for your sin, does it matter if you sleep with your boyfriend? If you're in a consenting, loving relationship? If Jesus has paid for your sin, does it matter if you just make a little lie at work to, to get ahead? Does it matter if you uh, gratify your sexual desires in the privacy of your own home? What's the harm? Does it matter if we're forgiven? In the last few weeks, we've seen in 2 Samuel uh, the scale of sin kind of blown up in full. Chapter 11, David, he commits horrible sexual abuse and murder. But then we see in chapter 12, God's astounding forgiveness and grace to him. And so I think we could get to this chapter now and think, well, did David's sin really matter? We know that God says uh, that sin deserves judgment. But God, he doesn't hate sin without good reason. We're going to see that, that sin is awful. It spreads and it spoils and it leaves deep scars. That's why God tells us not to do it. And so when we ignore him, not only do we deserve punishment, but we suffer. Uh, so uh, those forest fires in, on the island of, of Rhodes uh, a few weeks ago, it turns out that that was likely caused by a person, criminal negligence or, or arson, that's a crime, and, and that person deserves punishment. But there's also consequences. One little match, and homes are burnt down. Livelihoods are lost. Lives are lost. It's the same with all our sin. And we see that very graphically here in 2 Samuel 13. The consequences of sin are awful. King David, he's, he's not the most prominent character in this story. Actually, his, his kids are, but... Everything we read here is a consequence of his sin. And so we're going to find here a warning for those of us who are so confident of our forgiveness that we take our sin very casually. But also comfort for those of us who feel crushed or hopeless because of the consequences of sin in our lives. We're going to look at this in two points. The outline is on your sheets. It should also be on the screen Firstly, the king's disobedience brings misery to the people, 1 to 20. And then without the king's justice, the people suffer, 21 to 39. So firstly, the king's disobedience brings misery to the people. Back in chapter 7, God made a, a covenant with David, and he promised that through David's line, he would bring blessing to all of God's people. And particularly through his son, David's son will be the one who would build the temple. But... Uh, inherent in that promise is a warning that if the king strayed away from God's ways, well then the blessing to God's people would stop 
and instead there would be curse. And so when we get to chapter 11, and David commits adultery and murder, the alarm bells are ringing. This is the king who should bring blessing, but instead he commits horrible sin. And so God declares, as he's promised, David, uh, in chapter 12, verse 10, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. And so the scene is set. As we get to chapter 13, verse 1, the words we read are ominous. Here's the calamity promised. Verse 1, in the course of time, Ammon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. We've got a family tree. If we can put that up on the screen. It's probably too small to see. Oh, that's not too bad. Okay. Uh, hopefully this helps us see how the family all fit together. The particular characters here, Absalom, Ammon, Tamar, they're all children of the king. Way back in Deuteronomy 17, Moses, he laid out God's law for the people and he had a specific command for the king. He said, the king must not have many wives or his heart will be led astray. And David, he's ignored that. And so he reaps the consequence of his sin, a family dynamic of conflict, children who are far from the Lord. His decision to marry multiple wives in disobedience to the Lord It's like the ripple under the surface that works its way up into the tsunami of sin and the consequences that we're going to see. And so we find ourselves here. King David's eldest son, Ammon, has fallen for his little sister, Tamar. Verse 2, it tells us that Ammon became obsessed to the point of illness because she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. This isn't love. This is wicked, incestuous, lustful desire. It's probable that as the as the kind of virgin daughter of the king, Tamar, she was never allowed to be in private with a with a man. And so Ammon, he he can't do anything about these wicked desires, and his frustration is building and it's building. And so this advisor, Jonadab, notices. You know, perhaps this is the moment we think, fantastic. The wise counselor in the palace of the anointed king, he's going to step in. He's going to restrain uh, the, the kind of wicked inclinations of the, the royal prince. But this is a, a palace where the, the king himself has fallen in horrible sin and has involved his servants in the cover-up. And so we shouldn't be surprised. We find a culture that encourages and enables wickedness. And so verse 5, Jonathan presents Ammon with his plan. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonathan said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. Wicked Ammon, he hears a horrible plan and he thinks it sounds good. He sees the path that leads towards sin and he just, he walks straight down it. And so he pretends to be ill and the king comes and he asks for Tamar and King David does everything that he asks. 
And so Tamar finds herself sent to her brother's home. From verse 8, Tamar went to the house of her brother Ammon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Ammon said. So everyone left him. Then Ammon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Ammon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. In a culture that's casual about sin, everyone obliges. And Tamar, she finds herself alone in the bedroom with her brother. And Ammon asks his little, sex, his little sister for sex. Verse 11, Tamar, she pleads with, with him. She reminds him he's her brother. She reminds him of the consequences for her and for him. She points out that what he's asking is detestable and wicked. But Ammon ignores it all. His heart seeks one thing, not after God, but after satisfying his own sexual sin. And so we come to verse 14. He refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. This is despicable wickedness. The stronger brother overpowers the weaker sister. It makes our skin crawl to read it. To be clear, this is not written down because God endorses it in any way, but because he hates it in every way. Wicked abuse done behind closed doors, it doesn't go unseen by the God of the universe. So often we're told the Bible is a patriarchal book, a tool used for the oppression of women. But 3,000 years before it became a cause in the West, here we see the Bible exposing the wickedness of powerful men abusing women. And we see it denounced as an act of evil that God hates. We have a God who's angry about this injustice and every injustice like it. And as we'll see in a bit, he will make it right. This wickedness is Ammon's sin, but, but the root of it is King David's sin. King David's sin has consequences. We saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 11 how it had consequences in his life, and now we see that spread out into his family, and we're going to see that it's going to tear apart the nation as a whole. That's, that's what sin is like. It's not a pet pot plant that we put on the shelf and it stays where we want. Sin is not weed, and left unchallenged, it grows and it spreads, and it tears apart whatever it can get its tendrils on. Not only does sin spread, but it spoils. Immediately after he rapes her, we're told that Ammon hated Tamar with an intense hatred, more than he had ever loved her sin, it spoils God's good gifts. Sex in marriage is given to bind together in love. But outside of marriage, it, it does the very opposite. Instead of love, we find hate. And we see that in our culture. There's this Guardian article uh, from a, earlier this year. Thanks, Ellie. Uh, in this article, it was looking at the link between porn consumption and the, an increase in violence and sexual abuse in schools. And one researcher commented that nearly 
half of British 16 to 21-year-olds assume that physical aggression, like choking, was a part of normal healthy sex because of what they've seen in porn. God's good gift of sex, misused and distorted, and the result is violence and hatred. Sin, it spreads and it spoils, and it also leaves deep scars. As soon as Ammon is done with his sister, he tells her to leave. Get up, get out. And when she refuses, his servants, they throw a, brut- a brutalized and abused woman out onto the street, and they bolt the door behind her. Tamar, she's left grief-stricken and desolate. The family of God's anointed king is destroyed. And we see a household whose hearts are hardened to the consequences of their sin. Sin, it leaves deep scars on us and on others. Sin, particularly when it's the anointed kings, it has consequences. So what does this mean for us? Well, we can think about those consequences in two ways. As we think about David as the king and David as a man. Firstly, David is the king. David's sin, it brought curse where we should have seen blessing. Uh, What we read of here is God's specific and terrible punishment for David's covenant-breaking sin. His family, through whom should have come blessing, tremendous blessing to the people of God, it's completely broken. And the heir to the throne, Ammon, the one through whom should have come particular blessing, he's an incestuous rapist, far from God. And as we're going to see, things can only get worse. God's blessing to his people, it seems like it's completely undone. But of course, David, he only points to a greater king. King Jesus is the one through whom God pours out his blessings in full. And unlike David, in Jesus we have a perfectly obedient king. He never sinned, even as he was tempted in the desert. He never lusted. He never mistreated the vulnerable or abused his power. He never flew into a blind rage, never lied, never covered up, never failed to love perfectly. That's our anointed king, and we are his people. And so God's blessing on us is sure. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Jesus. Instead of us bearing the consequences of the king's sin, he bears the penalty for ours. Whatever sin you've committed, however damaging, if you've sought forgiveness, it's paid for by the blood of your obedient king. God's blessing on you, it is not in question. And if you live under the dire consequences of your own sin, or you bear the scars of someone else's, know that because Jesus was perfectly obedient, there is no doubt. One day, you will enjoy a world where the consequences of sin are dealt with. Where the spreading tendrils of sin are chopped at the source, where your scars are healed. When we see how damaging the consequences of sin are, that's when we see how wonderful the obedience of our king is. David, he was a king, but he was also a man. And there is a warning here for us that our sin too has consequences. This, of course, applies to all our sin, but but in a culture like ours, 
it's very unlikely that any of us are free from sexual sin. And so I want to stay focused there, and I want to reflect on it in two ways. Firstly, that sin left unchecked grows. Sin left unchecked grows. So uh, 11% of British men have paid for sex. 11%, more than one in 10. And that's more prevalent in professionals aged 25 to 34. We live in a culture that has failed to restrain the horrible consequences of sin. And we can't be so naive as to think that we're immune from that just because we're sat here in church tonight. If we don't take sin seriously and fight it, well, looking at pornography today, it does lead down a pathway that ends up with walking into a brothel and paying for sex. We, we can't be naive about that because that's what the pathway that we, that we see here in 2 Samuel 13. We need to be those who, who take our sin and bring it into the light, who see it for what it is, who confess it to a trusted friend. Do not think that your sin will go away without a fight. Because left to grow, our sin, it never stops. And the consequences, they don't stop with you. Because secondly, our sin isn't private. Our sin isn't private. So when we watch pornography, we contribute to an industry that exploits and traffics women. We damage our marriages now or our marriages in the future. When we have sex outside of the rightful place of marriage and think nothing of it, we contribute to a church culture that takes our sin very casually. And when we fall into regular sexual sin in the primacy of our own homes, well, our hearts get harder and harder towards God. And we're far less likely to call out the sin that we see in others for fear of exposing our own. We all damage one another with our sin. And the more authority we have, the more damage that we can do. So if you're a boss or a mother, if you're an older sister or a husband, if you really want on with a student or you lead a DG group, your sin has consequences for those that you lead. The king's disobedience brings misery. But of course, that's not where the story ends. We get to this point in the story and our our blood should rightly boil in us. We want justice for this wickedness. That's our second point. Without the king's justice, the people suffer. Without the king's justice, the people suffer. This is where the king should step in. Part of God's blessing is a king who restrains wickedness and brings justice. And what does David do? Verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. We expect that sentence to go on, I think. Uh, the king was furious and he, he dragged Ammon in before him and brought down the full justice of God's anointed king. But that's not what it says. He does nothing. He's furious. But anger without action is not justice. David's own sin, it spreads out its tendrils and the consequences affect more than just him. He does nothing. Perhaps for fear of looking like a hypocrite, or, or perhaps a fear of shining a light on his own sin. The sinful king, it means that the blessing of justice and the restraining of wickedness is undone. And there are consequences for the nation. Verse 22, 
Absalom never said a word to Ammon, either good or bad. He hated Ammon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. There's no justice for sin, and the consequences hate grows. We don't have time to look through the next section in in detail, but in one sense, what happens isn't a massive surprise. Festering injustice becomes the fertilizer for sin to flourish. Absalom, he decides in in the absence of the king's justice, well, he's going to bring his own. And so when the opportunity arrives, he takes it. Verse 24, he asks for the family to to gather to celebrate his sheep shearing. It's like his annual bonus has, has arrived. It's a good excuse for a party. There's an open bar. Ammon has a few too many drinks. He's high in spirit. And then Absalom tells his cronies this, verse 28. Strike Ammon down. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Ammon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. And continuing from verse 37, Absalom fled and went to tell my son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. The heir to the throne is murdered. When there's no justice from the king, sin grows unrestrained. And Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin are death. Because of the king's sin years earlier, well, here is a nation in tatters. The princes are publicly murdering one another. The family of God's anointed king, they've never looked further from God. And the son of David, the one through whom there should have should have come amazing blessing, lies dead. And the next in line, he's fled the country. God's blessing is undone, and the people suffer. There's no happy ending here. No wrongs righted. Because we're supposed to see that sin unpunished is miserable. How does this apply for us? Again, we can look at David as king and David as a man. As the king, well, David's sin means that there's no justice for the people. But we have a perfect, obedient king. When we cry out for justice, we can have every confidence. It is going to come. One day, Jesus is going to come back. And the women who've been trafficked into the sex industry, working around the corner in the shepherd's market, they will see justice. There is no doubt. One day Jesus will return and those people who lost their homes, who lost loved ones in those fires on roads, they will see justice. There is no doubt. I'm conscious there'll be a number here this evening who bear the consequences of the sins of others, who long for justice to be done. Sisters, brothers, we don't need to let hate build or seek vengeance now. Because you can be sure, one day Jesus is going to come back and you will see justice. There is no doubt. And as we wait for justice, even though the wait is hard, take comfort. Your anointed king is a king who who knows what it is to face the miserable consequences of other people's sin. Who knows what it is to stand in injustice We have an obedient king who cares 
and who will not let the misery of sin go unpunished. David was a king, but he was also a man. And so we we have here a, a pattern. So we see that God appoints people to positions of authority with the purpose of restraining wickedness and bringing justice. And so I think there's a rule of thumb for us here where we see injustice, well, do what you can within your sphere of influence to restrain wickedness and bring justice. Do what you can within your sphere of influence to restrain sin and bring justice. So if you're a manager at work, that could look like calling out inappropriate misogynistic chat in the office. It could even look like seeking to hire vulnerable women who've escaped the sex trade or encouraging colleagues to use a volunteer day to support a charity that promotes justice. If you're a parent, or an uncle, or an aunt, or a godparent, it looks like teaching the children in your life the, uh, the value of all people, especially the vulnerable, in God's eyes, even as the culture perhaps teaches them something different. For some here, it could look like getting involved with a, a charity like Tamar, Please don't miss out on the opportunity tonight to chat with Christian, to find out more, to get involved. Whoever we are, we have influence over our friends. And so particularly, actually, I want to speak to the guys. Brothers, we need to be men who are the first to call out inappropriate misogynistic chat, who call out conversations that objectify or demean who call out the glorification of pornography. Don't be fooled into thinking that those things are harmless. And in those moments when we stand up for the vulnerable, we are doing a work of God-given justice. We must be those who do what we can within our sphere of influence. And beyond that, beyond that, we entrust justice to leaders that God has appointed, though imperfect, And we pray, come Lord Jesus, as we long for the day that our anointed king comes back and brings perfect justice. Before we end, there may be some here this evening who are feeling crushed by this. You may be thinking, my life is an irredeemable mess because of my sin. Perhaps because you bear the consequences of your own sin or someone else bears the consequences of yours. Know that you'll never be unsaving. David, in, in Psalm 32, he talked about how when he didn't confess his own sin, it was like his bones were wasting away within him. Don't leave your sin to fester. Don't leave it hidden. Bring it into the light. Confess it to a trusted friend. Turn in repentance to your perfect, obedient king. Even after the awfulness of David's sin and the miserable consequences, even when all of God's blessings seemed undone, God still kept his promises. Through David's son Solomon, the line of David continued. And years later, a baby was born in the line of David. Jesus was born the true and better, the perfectly obedient son of David. And by his death, our sins are paid for. And so if we repent and turn from our sin, our salvation is sure. If God can still bring salvation to the world through David, 
well then he can still save you through Jesus, whatever you've done. So if I'm forgiven, does my sin really matter? I hope we've seen tonight, it does. The consequences of sin are miserable. We have to take that seriously. But the more we see the consequences of our sin, the more wonderful our perfectly obedient king becomes. Church, we we can have every confidence that even though we bear the consequences of sin now, we also enjoy every blessing through Christ. And so as we end, I want to join in saying the Lord's Prayer together as we pray these words that our obedient king shared with us. Well, we, we ask God together for his help as we face temptation and we call for the coming of Christ's kingdom, a kingdom where sin is no more and justice reigns. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together now and then I'll finish with another prayer. Together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we're humbled by a passage like this. Give us soft hearts to see the reality of our sin. Help us to flee from temptation as as we recognize the consequences. But thank you most of all that we have a king who is perfectly obedient. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our perfectly obedient king, and so our blessings are sure. And most wonderfully, where we bear the consequences of sin now, we can have absolute certainty that one day you will come back and the consequences of sin will be dealt with and you will bring perfect justice. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.